university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. My name is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers, and this is the season premiere for season two. Season one, we did a lot of really good work had a lot of very interesting guests and very interesting conversations. And so we're going to keep it rolling here in season two over the next couple of months here. So thank you for joining us again, or thank you for hanging out with us for the first time. I think you'll really enjoy what we have to offer here. So today on The Deconstruction Workers, I am joined by friend of the podcast and friend of mine, Dr. Rick Stevens. Dr. Stevens is at the University of Colorado Boulder, just up the road. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So welcome back. Today we are dealing with a favorite topic of popular culture scholarship, something that gets talked about quite a bit in pop culture scholarship circles, and that is the concept of the Mary Sue. <laughs> Before we get started into some theory and conversation about the Mary Sue, I thought we should probably start off by defining what we mean by the Mary Sue. And when I say defining what we mean by the Mary Sue, I'm going to give my definition and then I'd like you to give your definition because one of the fun parts of pop culture scholarship is that we are often talking about the same thing and using very different definitions. Right. I thought we should start there. Sure. Cool. Okay. So as I understand the Mary Sue, the Mary Sue is a term that comes out of the fan fiction community. So if you, dear listener, are not really familiar with the fan fiction community, you should go back to the season finale of season one, season one, episode 10, where our friend Natalie Shepard sort of breaks down some of the history and tropes of fan fiction. The Mary Sue comes out of this fan fiction tradition. So... Essentially, the Mary Sue is a character inserted by the author, and that character is the best person in the story. They are often <laughs> irrelevantly overskilled. They are oftentimes idealized characters. They are characters that are the funniest, the smartest, the best, whatever, and no matter what they do, everyone around them loves them. So even if they turn out to be awful people or mean or terrible or whatever, people still love the Mary Sue because the Mary Sue is essentially the author inserting themselves mm -hmm. into the story. So that's my, that's the way that I define a Mary Sue. Well, that's not that different from the way I do. So a little bit of background on me, I am a Star Trek 
fan, lifelong, really, from childhood and all the way up through the next generation and, and a lot of the culture in the 80s that was kind of exploding. Fan fiction was a big part of that when like, I think about the cons that I would go to as a kid and, and by today's standards, they're, they're kind of ridiculous. You know, a few tables here and there with people's unpublished scripts. People have reference books that they're making. A lot of fan work was the dominant culture because we didn't have what we do today, which is the, you know, corporations just churning out tons and tons and tons of stuff to consume. In the midst of that, that's where Mary Sue literally comes from, was a character called Mary Sue in a 1970s fanfic story. And that's kind of the way I've always understood that character. It's an author insertion that allows the author to take control of the text. So, for example, yes, the youngest, the brightest, the most accomplished, but also the one that can push around or even dominate the main characters. It's a way of the author to gain control of that text to kind of show, you know, we, we say her dominance because most of the early Mary Sue's were female in the Star Trek end of the spectrum, but it absolutely can be a male as well. The Gary Stu character, right, that we can talk about. But we're on the same page there. That's that's classically how we understand it. Now, that trope, which are these, you know, pattern conventions that we can recognize and analyze, have shown up in other media. There are episodes of Star Trek, for example, where people have said, ah, that new character in that show, that's the writer. And they can they can draw the similarities back to the writer. And that does appear. But typically, it's just the case that it, in, in modern media that writers don't have that much control, except in cases where you have a long-running television series. So it, we usually don't talk about Mary Sue's in terms of movies, or at least scholars don't. Although we've heard that quite a bit coming around some movies in recent years. Right. Well, this brings me to sort of my first discussion question, I guess, for us, mm -hmm. uh, now that we've done some definitional work, which is at the very core, I think, of why I wanted to talk this season about the Mary Sue in the first place. That question being, can Mary Sue's only appear in fan-created work, or is it possible to have canonical, canon, written by the author mm -hmm. Mary Sue's in a work? Yeah, so I think the answer is yes, they can, but that's because of kind of the modern media environment where when you look at science fiction fandom, the move from fanfic writers to canon writers and back, you know, back and forth, is more porous than it has been in other, other media forms. And that's that's the instances in which you can see that happen, where, you know, somebody gets that that kind of control of that influence over the text, especially when you look at the 70s and 80s and, and uh, especially the, the 80s and early 90s. You can't, but it's actually pretty rare, mainly because, I mean, you know, as we're talking about media television shows, as you know, are it's a lot of sausage making going on. And the writer isn't always the one that has ultimate control. It's actually only special shows in which the writers get that kind of control that they want. You know, there's the there's the studio, there's producers, there's, you know, even actors sometimes exert their will on the show. So it, it's a little bit more difficult to say that there's an established pattern of Mary Sue's on television. And I would say that it's impossible to have one in a film, unless it was some kind of special vanity project that 
was attached to a franchise. I mean, there's, there's so many things that would have to happen to, to make that formula work. So tip, I, I would say the majority of the Mary Sue's that we encounter are going to be in fan fiction. Yeah, I, I, mm, I struggle with this. Okay. I struggle with it because, number one, I think it's entirely possible for a content creator mm-hmm. of whatever of whatever type to fall so in love with one of their characters that that character inherently becomes a Mary Sue mm-hmm. within the okay. con- within the context of the story. But number two, I also think that's entirely possible within the duration of a film. Within the duration of a film, there can be characters that are so mind-bogglingly unlikable and yet afforded the adulation of the people around them in ways that are a real issue for me in watching the film. For example, I would argue that the big example that I can think of of this is Natalie Portman in Garden State. If you've ever seen Garden State with Zach Braff, her and Mm -hmm. Zach Braff, where a lot of people attribute that to this other trope that we have, and we can certainly talk about later today as well, the idea of the manic pixie dream girl. Mm -hmm. I think the manic pixie dream girl is often also completely a Mary Sue Hmm. within the context of that film. They often have all of these quote unquote magical powers, right? Uh Uh-huh. They get away with everything. Everyone loves them and thinks they're so charming and thinks they're so wonderful. They tend to overshadow the actual plot line of the film. We can think of lots of characters within the context of a, of a single film that fill that role. So here's a, a point of definition that probably is different between like the way we think about this particular trope. There's a fan service component that goes along with the insertion, especially in the original, like when you think about where this trope began. And so if you wanted to say, the reason why I would say, I'm not sure I would see Garden State as a film that could hold a Mary Sue, is that there wasn't, the the author, a writer of that film, can't be a fan of that until the film comes into existence. So there's, that. That's a, maybe that's a key distinguishing component that I've had, having been more involved with the original view of that. That's, But that's also why there are other tropes that I look at in combination to kind of get to some of those. Like the one that I thought you were going to say, funny enough, was I thought we were going to be talking about Tina Fey and Mean Girls, right? And <laughs> thinking, thinking about where she puts herself or her presumed daughter in that picture to kind of make that story work. But again, I've always looked at the Mary Sue specifically as a franchise phenomenon. And maybe that's going back to its roots. The idea that you're going to insert a character into Star Trek, which had existed for a decade at that point, in order to take control, to dominate the franchise space, to position yourself in it. And the reason why I've always been interested in it the the Mary Sue that way is you're a fan of something and then you get to write it and fans get to do that without permission, but sometimes they get permission to write Canon. And that's where I think you start to see how people start manipulating their own orientation to the text. Captain Kirk and Spock had this particular power relationship within Starfleet or within the text, but now here's this new Lieutenant 
who is better than them and is kind of putting them in their place, a new power dynamic, which is the author reasserting and reestablishing her power politics to the text that she loves. And that's that's where Mary Sue kind of uh, repositioning happens, or at least the way that I understand them. Whereas if you're talking about a new text that's not part of a pre-existing franchise, I start to wonder, well, can you have a character that just is that way, right? So this is somebody just writing what they know and establishing a character from the original origin point of that text in order to to work within it. The difference being Gene Roddenberry creates Star Trek. There are particular writers that start with Star Trek. A fanfic person coming in is coming into somebody else's text and asserting control over it. You could maybe make the the argument that you you are. It's just not the way I've thought about it. I've really thought about it as it's the co-opting of that tax space. So then let me throw it back into your wheelhouse. This is going to be, so for listeners, there's a tiny bit of inside baseball here, but I'm going to let Rick unravel it for you. (laughs) Sure. So then what do we do with Chris Claremont and Uh, Captain Marvel in the (laughs) late 1980s? Go. Oh yeah. So comic books are fun, right? And so the thing about comics that challenge stress and strain all conventions is that they're so long standing. It's like that we talked about before the tyranny of the serial, the idea that stories have got to keep going. So Chris Claremont does put himself into one of his stories for a brief period. You could argue that Carol Danvers, who we now know as Captain Marvel, we used to know as Miss Marvel, was a Mary Sue. And let me let me explain that. So in the 1970, late 1970s, Miss Marvel number one comes out in 1977. This character that was designed to be a feminist superhero is produced by Marvel. The first issue does pretty well. We could get into whether it was actually feminist or not. I would argue it's, you know, kind of took the trappings of feminism and tried to sell it to feminists, but didn't actually have feminism in its core, at least not at first. Chris Claremont, the uh, the writer that Dr. Bell mentions, takes over the book fairly quickly after that initial issue. And so he is trying to explore this idea. And he makes some pretty significant changes to that character, changes her, her outfit, her outlook, lots, lots of things that are going on. Miss Marvel, though, sales are never great past that first issue. And it winds up being canceled around, I want to say, issue 26. And so what happens in the narrative is what often happens when a book doesn't do well, especially during that um, early 1980s era, is that the superhero in question whose book gets canceled becomes an Avenger. And the reason why that occurs is really kind of, it's a publication issue. Miss Marvel becomes an Avenger, which is an economic way to keep a character viable, put her on a team, and then you have the team book. And then if people are not responding really well to to Miss Marvel, that's okay, because she's alongside Captain America, she's alongside Iron Man, whoever, you know, Hawkeye, all the the, the classic characters. And that's a way to think about team books, is, is a way of supporting multiple characters who may or may not be popular enough on their own to support their own book. Well, 
The other part of that, though, is The Avengers is not being written by Chris Claremont at that time. Chris Claremont is writing X-Men. So at this time, this is when George Perez and, uh, and largely Jim Shooter it was kind of putting his foot down on a lot of these narratives. And, and Jim Shooter is really into science fiction. He, he likes that kind of blend of superhero and science fiction uh, stories. So Miss Marvel is in Avengers from, I want to say, issue 183 um, until issue 200. And the buildup to issue 200 had a, a very peculiar arc. A few issues before the actual issue 200, uh, Carol Danvers is on a mission and suddenly vanishes. And it's a bizarre thing. She vanishes. I think one character notices, but they don't really talk about what just happened. She's just gone. Issue 199, the Avengers get back to the mansion at the end of the end of that adventure, and they find Carol Danvers in the mansion pregnant. And she has no memory of how she came to be pregnant, but this is kind of the arc headed into issue 200. Issue 200, which of course is a big anniversary, kind of spectacular, extra-sized issue, is this big science fiction story about the Avengers trying to unravel this mystery. So what happens is that Carol Danvers quickly gives birth to an alien child who rapidly grows to adulthood. Everything is accelerated in this uh, being's metabolism, which is itself a trope we've seen in many other science fiction stories. But anyway, this character named Marcus, when he becomes an adult, he then explains this very complicated story about how he being the extra-dimensional descendant of Immortus, which is a, related to Doctor Doom and Kang the Conqueror, and it, that's, that's a whole separate thing, had pulled Carol Danvers into this other dimension because he wanted to return to the Earth dimension, and he had devised a way to do that, but what it meant was he seduced her, he impregnated her with himself, sent her back to Earth so that he could be born from her body and then grow up to be an adult who is now in love with her. And so, Good all times. right, we've, yeah. oh yeah, this is Jim Shooter really, you know, twisting and turning. I, I'm, I'm presuming his handprint was on that. I mean, the creator, there were several creators involved. Anyway, so this Marcus character, his aging doesn't stop when it was supposed to. So now he's going to die. So all he can do is go back to this dimension where time works differently. But it's in that context where he's about to leave and Carol Danvers says that she is, she doesn't remember any of these events occurring, but she has feelings for him. So they have this kind of happily ever after moment where Marcus and Carol depart for this other dimension and the Avengers all just kind of say, I'm glad she found her happily ever after. And that's the end of this story. Well, comics and nothing else is said, right? And, and nothing else is said past that. It's like all of a sudden the next issue, they're not even going to talk about this. Some fans express some discomfort with this. I mean, one, Miss Marvel really? is gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, and part of it was just simply the fact that Miss Marvel went from having her own series to then she's an Avenger to now she is gone. Uh, that's Marvel's way of, you know, getting rid of her without killing her. And so there were people that liked that character. There are other people who were pointing out, wow, um, that's, that's a comic book rape that just happened. You just told a story where a woman was abducted, was put in an environment where she did not have feelings for this person, was worn down by that person, 
And it even said in the text, there was this line about how he used machines to help her fall for him. So, you know, here's a technological roofie he gives her. Then they mate, he wipes her memory, sends her back, she gives birth, all of this stuff happens, but she's in this, you know, kind of Stockholm Syndrome place at the end of that that series, and so, or at the end of that, that issue. And so there were people who were legitimately upset, and one of the people was Chris Claremont. He he wrote about this. He was pretty. He was in fan magazines. He he was pretty upset that this happened. He had some identification with that character. He had written most of the Miss Marvel solo comic series. The character had gone to the Avengers. Other people handled her. They did this. He kind of felt it, it appears strongly that um, this character had been misused. So Chris Claremont gets to write Avengers Annual Number Ten, which is a very special and interesting comic series. And the final two issues of Miss Marvel get kind of put into the front of that comic book, where you know. So we're now going to continue the Miss Marvel series, where the X Men villain Rogue, who later becomes an X Men herself, is introduced for the first time and has absorbed all of Carol Danvers's memories, powers, all of that. So if you if you know the X-Men Rogue, she's fly, she's super strong, she's all up. Those are Miss Marvel's powers. She takes them from Carol Danvers at the beginning of this comic and Carol Danvers is left kind of an empty shell. She is rescued by Spider-Woman who takes her to the X-Men. Charles Xavier helps her to recover her memories and that all sets up after battles and all the stuff that happens in a comic book this really interesting scene in in the in the comic where the we're in wait for it wait for it we're in chris claremont mary sues himself he does uh because all of a sudden you have carol danvers telling off the avengers walking back through that story of avengers 200 and pointing out all of the sexism all of the you know, the manipulation and basically calling out her at cheap and quote unquote friends them, you know, you were my friends and you let this happen. You enabled my continued rape. And so in that sense, it is very obvious that this is Chris Claremont yelling at those creators. The creators are the Avengers. Chris Claremont is Miss Marvel. That is a Mary Sue moment because she is standing with superior knowledge and interpretation of that text and is able to give voice to criticism of the comic within the context of the comic, which is pretty fantastic. And so then I should say after that, Carol Danvers leaves the Avengers universe. She's, she's done with them. She's upset with them for having betrayed her. She is now going to hang out with the X-Men and she is going to get new powers. She becomes one of the most powerful beings in the universe as binary and goes on a whole different set of adventures. And so in, in the midst of that, Chris Claremont kind of restores her. And yeah, you could say he he definitely put himself in that one issue after that. She becomes kind of a supreme-powered being, although, again, the joy of comics, she passes to other hands after that. And then I would say she's not—it's kind of hard to say a comic character is constantly a Mary Sue because there's different versions every time a new creative team comes online. But right. definitely there was a moment where that was Chris Claremont talking through her mouth and manipulating the story in order to shame the Avengers who were the proxy for the people who had written that Avengers story in the first place. Which is why I think we can make, you know, a distinction in this case between a true Mary Sue and 
what we might loosely call the author's avatar. Uh So there are lots of instances throughout both literature and television and film where the author inserts an avatar of themselves. Sure. It could be argued that Hermione Granger is the author's avatar of J.K. Rowling, for example. Sure. And has been argued fairly extensively. That's a different thing than what happened in the Claremont case. Yeah, I mean, the thing about if I would say Hermione Granger... You can argue she's an author avatar. I have a hard time with her being positioned as a Mary Sue. Because no, so do I. That's why I'm making the distinction. Yeah, I mean, she, she's writing this series whole cloth from the beginning with this character as a part of the formula. So that's that's kind of the way I see it. it, it she can't appropriate her own text that she created in the first place. That's, you know, when, when Chris Claremont does it, he is jumping into an Avengers narrative that other people wrote in order to shout them down and to use his voice to recontrol and re reconfigure that text with a character. That's why I, I, I would say you can you can say Carol Danvers is a Mary Sue in that moment for sure. So yeah, there's an argument to be made that there can be canonical Mary Sues. Sure. I don't think it's as common as some people would like to argue, but I do think it is possible. I had a pretty extensive argument for why Daenerys Targaryen is also a Mary Sue, but Mm. that's a whole, that's a whole different. She doesn't start off as a Mary Sue, but she sure becomes one, particularly in the television show and particularly by the, what is it? Fourth season. But I'm interested in a couple of other sort of avenues on this as well. Uh-huh. The first of which is one of my favorite alliterative tropes that we get within pop culture scholarship, and that is the Gary Stew. So we have right. the Mary Sue and we have the Gary Stew, because historically, Mary Sues were always female characters. And that has a tradition that's rooted in, as Natalie pointed out in season one, episode 10, That's rooted in the fact that most fan fiction was authored, has been authored, and continues to be authored historically by women. And so it's oftentimes a way for the female author to insert herself into a narrative, particularly narratives that don't usually feature women. Mm -hmm. But there's been an awful lot of instances of Gary Stews as well. This idea that male authors also want to insert themselves into into texts. So I guess sure. my question to you is sort of where you come down on this. Does a Mary Sue inherently <laughs> have to be female in order to fit into the category? No, no, not at all. And so let me let me pull some for the benefit of the listeners, particularly pull some examples together. So again, this is kind of a Star Wars, Star Trek kind of tension point. There are people, even feminists, who have suggested that Wesley Crusher is a Gary Stew. And oddly, I disagree with that argument, but the argument goes that this is Gene Roddenberry putting himself on the bridge as a teenage character in a way that he's smarter, he's better in all of this, he gets to control the, the narrative. My, my problem with that is Gene Roddenberry wrote the original Star Trek, or at least part of it, and he's writing the new one, like or at least producing it, controlling it. He doesn't need to do that. He gets to, he gets to determine what Jean-Luc Picard is going to be. So he doesn't need to assert control. It's his property, if you see what, I, what I'm saying. But nevertheless, the pattern does seem to be there other than that author insertion. The author insertion, I, I just 
really believe it's about inserting the author into someone else's franchise or someone else's narrative space. But there are people, I just wanted to say, that have said, no, it it could be a male. So the problem with that is once you get a little carried away with thinking about anybody who's perfect or or too powerful or or too too accomplished, well, then there are tons of other tropes that suddenly start to look like a Mary Sue or a Gary Stu. You know, for example, here's my problem with, you know, the argument in Star Wars is, is Luke Skywalker a Gary Stu? Is Anakin Skywalker a Gary Stu? And then I'm like, well, if we're going to get to that space, aren't all Jedi Gary Stu's? I mean, by definition. Or are they chosen ones, which is literally a trope that addresses what they are. I mean, he's literally called a chosen one. And I think that's because of that, that trope. And that's that's kind of the problem. And this is this kind of matches that issue that we've we've identified before, where scholars are trying to work out distinctions between terms for descriptive power so that we can communicate what we're we recognize as pattern and we want other people to verify or to speak into that. So we use these labels and pattern definitions that are that are created. But our scholarship on popular culture is being expressed in pop culture spaces, which means that we're interacting with people that are not coming at this from the scholarly traditions that we are. And not to privilege that, it just for it muddles the the definitional space. When I'm talking to fans about a pattern I'm seeing, it's difficult for me to do that when I'm trying to say, well, there's a hundred something tropes I'm picking between to define this pattern. And fans wind up only knowing a few they've heard of. And one of those happens to be the Mary Sue, um, which which gets applied to everything, it seems, these days. So lots of things become Mary Sues to people who aren't steeped in the scholarship. Right. That aren't actually Mary Sues. Now, I will say this. This is where some of what, you know, I study a lot of toxic fan culture. This is where you start to see one of the rhetorical patterns emerge when I'm identifying, you know, the difference between what I think of as toxic masculine fan culture and regular just, you know, excited or passionate fan culture (laughs) is that that use of that term let's take star wars for a minute anakin skywalker is not a mary sue by most people's definition but ray is and i have a hard time distinguishing like pattern like the pattern recognition why one is and we and I can dig into that and we can talk about you know struggle and all of that stuff that that, that people say but what's interesting is it appears that when this this pattern gets co-opted that way it does appear that males are exempted from this so I absolutely believe that males can fit this pattern I believe that males can put themselves into other people's works Chris Claremont had Carol Danvers be a Mary Sue for him. Had he done that with Captain America, it would have been a Gary Stew. You know, that that would have happened. And that has happened in comics where people suddenly take over a character and put their voice in it and change the positioning of that character's power set and all of that for a moment. But on the other hand, when people co-opt that term and start to use it colloquially, which is, I think, why we need to talk about this and, and try to get to differences in the definitions and why we use them the way that we do, there does seem to be some inherent bias towards Mary Sue 
has to be female. And and I don't know if that's because the magazine Mary Sue has such popularity or I, I don't know what the what the currency of that term is, why people sometimes seem to only know one trope and that's the one. But that's kind of what happened. Hey, hold that thought. Let's take a short break here. We'll be back in two and two. Did you know that the Deconstruction Workers podcast has a Patreon page? Well, we do. We have a Patreon page. It is www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW. You can donate as little as $1 a month towards keeping the lights on, and we would really appreciate your support. So click on over to www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW and pledge your support if you enjoy what you're hearing. Now, back to the show. There's a couple of things. Number one, the term is most often seen as inherently derogatory. Mm-hmm. Although I would argue that that's not a necessary component. I wonder if you have a character who is all of the things we say a Mary Sue is. They are sort of impossibly skilled. Their backstory is cooler than everybody else's. They're everything that all the other characters are, but like this much more. And Mm -hmm. we still really like that character. Yeah. I wonder if that then disqualifies them as being a a Mary Sue. Well, but see, like can be in the eye of the beholder. And let me walk into this. So first of all, part of the Mary Sue stereotype, the gendered nature of it comes from the 1970s, where mostly female fanfic writers are writing about Star Trek and other texts, but Star Trek in this case, which is male dominated. And so there is this kind of of gendered disparity coming from the industry, coming from our culture that inherently is invoked when a Mary Sue dominates a male space. So you have a female writer using a character to dominate a male site of culture. And that becomes a part of that trope to some people. Now, I absolutely believe that Gary Stews exists. I absolutely believe that that's not, the the gender is not the point. The gender might've been the point in the seventies when, you know, fan culture and fanfic was, was mostly dominated by women because they did perhaps did not have as many opportunities in, in canon space to exert their creativity. But we're not in that era anymore. Not that there aren't still disparities, but just that men are doing this too. The disparities aren't exclusively as gendered. So when we look at this, here's here's my problem with these other uses and definitions is if Ray, for example, is a Mary Sue, I have a hard time sorting out which author insert she is, even if I agree she can be likable and, and be a Mary Sue, the, my problem with that isn't about the likability. It's about, is she J.J. Abrams or is she Ryan Johnson? I, right. You know, or which one is she supposed to be? And what is it that you're saying J.J. Abrams and or Ryan Johnson are doing to George Lucas's text. Now, don't get me wrong. This is why The Last Jedi, I think, brings this up, is people feel like this particular director is departing from, you know, established canon. I I happen to disagree with that strongly, but that's where I think that comes in. But that's also why it gets gendered the way that it does and why it's Rey and not other characters. Well, I may have not phrased my point in the way in which... I'm thinking about it. What I'm saying is if we liked 
if we, and by we, I mean fans who I encounter at least a couple of fans a week still who say to me things like, ever since Kathleen Kennedy took over Lucasfilm, the Star Wars universe has been ruined and these films are terrible, blah, blah, blah. The we there are the people who fall into that into that headspace, the we that I'm talking about here. If those fans liked Ray more, we wouldn't be having the conversation of whether or not she's a Mary Sue. Oh, no, I I, I agree with that. That's the point that I'm trying to make. I agree with that. And here's the contrary. If they liked Luke less, they would be more likely to extend that criticism to him. There's a positioning of these texts. Let me just take a, since we're already talking Star Wars, let me give a a really quick orientation to my own analysis of that. I've been pretty embedded in in some of those groups. Part of what's going on in the Star Wars fandom is, you know, what you're describing. And and we can talk about how gender plays into that. The idea that this Star Wars was not what I expected, and there happens to be a female producer involved instead of a male producer, which all of a sudden takes on a lot of baggage. And suddenly... Now that opens the door for more likely Mary Sue kinds of arguments, even though, again, the formula doesn't match. But there's a lot of other things going on with that. There are, I'm still on, on the side having a hard time believing that most Star Wars fans are in the camp you're describing. I run into a lot of people who uh, feel that way, run into students that feel that way, other other scholars that feel that way, but just fans in general who feel that the new Star Wars are not, are not as good as the older ones. The interesting thing about that I have learned is that when they say the older ones, they're not always talking about the originals. They're usually making a distinguishing mark between the prequels and the sequel films, which I find interesting because there's a whole group of fans that are that I've found that are the opposite. That the original films have a have a special place that the prequels never lived up to and the sequel films are finally restoring some of those wondrous feelings that existed in the originals. Full disclosure, that tends to be my own space of fandom yeah <laughs> you know. well i w- i would argue it's not exclusive to a generation i you know as far as i can tell i don't think it is either i'm just you know positioning myself within that narrative but i have found more generation xers who grew up going to the theater who are more likely to be on this side of the fence of the interpretation of that text. And that's one of the interesting variables I've had, like when I get into a fandom is like, where was your first Star Wars? You know, as you're describing your your preferences, what is the primal text to you? If you first went to the theater to see a prequel film, in other words, the the original trilogy is in a sense, locked away on DVD or VHS for you. You didn't experience that time in between films or all of the culture that was created around that. You have a different reading of that. You know, I mean, we could get into religious frames here and talk about who becomes fundamentalist and who, you know, there's the whole spectrum of of approaches to those texts. But my, my point is just that we're coming at the text differently. We read Luke Skywalker differently for example, in the midst of that. So one small example of that would be I who grew up going to Star Wars films and have more Star Wars merchandise than, I mean, man, most other people. I don't I don't want it, to, it's ridiculous. A lot of my childhood was wrapped up in that, but my approach to the formative years of, of growing into Luke Skywalker was 
here is a galactic hero who, as it turns out, is a terrible Jedi. He just he doesn't do all the things. And the prequels only double down and show us that so that when we get to these later movies, Right. Yeah. I, I totally buy this guy who was in over his head and, and it every step in the original trilogy seems to not follow the path that we now formulize as the quote unquote official Jedi way does a terrible job setting up an academy and trying to train people and then gets disgruntled and runs away as he does every single time. Right. This is his thing. He's impulsive. He takes action. He's a great hero, but not necessarily a great teacher. So in the midst of that, you have this Ray character that's inserted and people, I think, don't like the way she interacts with these. It's like there's not enough reverence between her and these established characters. And I think that has to do with the positioning we have of those texts, like the the, the audience member, the fan. And there's a there's a big difference in that. But the part that I that I was trying to say quickly, and it turns out I said long in a long, long about way, is that we're also, just like in our political system, kind of caught up in bubbles of discourse around people that we tend to share values with. And as a result, it becomes difficult for us to judge our own prominence in the fan community. I am pretty having a hard time not believing that most Star Wars fans, legitimate fans on all sides, like these new films. I am perfectly willing to stipulate there's a large number of legitimate fans, because fans who pour passion is something have legitimate, who don't like them. But in terms of size, I, it, that's been a really interesting question to me, is how people visualize themselves in those spaces. But what it leads them to do is to try to create boundaries between themselves and other fan groups. And one of the ways they do that is to say, by making Ray a Mary Sue now, I'm saying that Ryan Johnson is a fanfic writer. He's not a director of a Star Wars film. He's a fanfic writer. So we can safely disregard his work is not canon because the canon doesn't match what I feel canon should. And I think that's kind of at the root of some of these. Meanwhile, we're just bending this formula all out of whack in order to get to that place. And and that's that's part of my concern and, and why I feel like we need to talk about these definitions and kind of get them into more of an agreeable space. You and I disagree in some places sometimes about could this character be a Mary Sue or not, but we tend to agree on the pattern and the formula, and at least we're in range of whether the pat what the pattern looks like. In broader popular discourse, especially around toxic fandom, man, it, it's all over the place. And that that pattern or the labeling for that pattern is used to describe many other patterns in order to arrive at the pre-existing conclusion, it seems that this text is not worthy of consideration. And this is how I'm going to prove it. Well, that's because our entry point of discussion of the Mary Sue in general is in a scholarly fashion, in a way to identify and categorize what's happening within a narrative. It's mm -hmm. not, as many fans do, in order to disqualify the text. Right. And in many ways, disqualify the text from existence in the first place. Right. There's a link, as we talked about when last we spoke on the podcast, between sort of policing the borders of your fandom mm -hmm. and policing what gets to count as the artifact of worship within 
the borders of that fandom. And just to recap the heart of that, we all do that to some degree. I'm a Star Trek fan. There are episodes of Star Trek that grate my nerves because of the way a character was handled. And I can usually go back and see, okay, a new writer came on and they took over this character and that was badly handled. In my head, my head canon, as it were, that show doesn't count. I just say that was a trial run that we're just going to say didn't happen. But I can't tell another fan it didn't happen. I mean, canon is such a weird thing when we're talking about pop culture anyway. But the idea that the audience gets to determine the canon, by the way, is, is bizarre considering what canon is. I mean, if we're getting back again to that religious history, the idea that learned scholars get together and argue politically for here's what will count and what won't. Then it becomes, well, I don't care if you're a Christian who wants to believe in that apocryphal book, the, uh, the council has ruled. You're, you're, do- you're, you're done, right? You don't, you don't get that say. Right. But somehow, fan entitlement has led us to a place where we act like the fans get to decide this somehow. And, and don't get me wrong. I am very pro-Henry Jenkins, pro-Sumer focused. I do believe that Star Trek was a text that was significantly created by the fandom itself, not just the creator. That's where we started to see this power differential. But in terms of deciding what text is or isn't canon, there there is still some problems there. It's difficult for me to get to the point where I would say that an episode of Clone Wars doesn't count because something happened in it that doesn't match what I want. So much less so that episode seven shouldn't be canon because some other people didn't like the way Luke Skywalker was portrayed. These are in some ways some very interesting conversations. But that also betrays the the motive, which is what you were describing a minute ago. And that is, you know, we'll bend these tropes, these words, these patterns, the analysis into a way to bolster my own claim of what I like should be privileged and what people, what I disagree with, with other people, we should just say doesn't count. Um, so we're going we're gonna to look and say the Mary Sue critique is a delegitimizing critique, but that's not what the trope is. The trope is in an analysis of text. It just so happens that in fanfic, that's what it became associated with are these appropriations of other people's text and the misapplication of the power dynamics in them, which is the, one of the key points there, did delegitimize some of those texts, but that's not the purpose of the trope. The trope is an analysis tool. Although there is an argument to be made that the way in which the Mary Sue operates within a text is what dictates that it be categorized as a Mary Sue, not necessarily the way that fans interpret that existence or those but that's what i mean by changing the power dynamics if this perfect character is pushing around james t kirk that is changing the way that starfleet works within the narrative it's changing the way that captain kirk's established position works on the bridge or or among his crew and And this is coming from a fan writer who is inserting it into a place where there's no precedent for this this setup. You're you're changing the the significant mechanics and power dynamics of that universe. And that's that's why people, I think, run to say, you know, a Lucasfilm film that that is directed by someone other than George Lucas, they consider a fanfic. But it's like that's not that's not the same thing. 
Well, and that's why I'm sort of dismissing this argument of Ray as the Mary Sue. Right. Because it's not, the existence of a Mary Sue is not an act of interpretation. It's the function of a character within the narrative regardless of fan opinion about that. That's why, going back to what I said earlier, if people liked Ray more, they wouldn't argue whether or not she's a Mary Sue. Well, because, I mean, I can just as easily say, along this line, that Luke Skywalker is a Mary Sue author, avatar of George Lucas, who is overpowered in exploring this universe and taking control. But that's not the way the Mary Sue works, especially not when the primal author is the one creating the text in the first place. And so I I, I don't, again, that's why I kind of get to, I don't mean to make it quite so binary, but it's like if Ray is a Mary Sue, then every Jedi potentially is a Mary Sue or a Gary Stew, depending on how you want to want to look at that. And I just, that is one of those kind of rhetorical moves in an argument that removes all meaning from the pattern and all explanatory power of the tool, which is what a trope is. And the definition, extending it to that, extending it to this argument of, I don't feel like, you know, a modern Star Wars movie that is, you know, Lucasfilm under Disney is canon. And so I'm going to make an argument using textual analysis and tropes in order to do that, to define, you know, the analysis of a character. The problem is it decenters all the other characters in all the other franchises, too. And all of a sudden, we're talking about every everybody being a Mary Sue. Any, any superhero, any Jedi, anybody with extraordinary powers. Well, that's the problem with using textual analysis and tropes that you don't really fully understand. <laughs> well, there is that, too. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's the way in which people have heard a thing before yeah, and then want to apply it to a thing they don't like without understanding that that term is not applicable. Probably already, even me laughing at that comes across as elitist, but unless I embrace that elitist position fully, I am certainly not against tropes and tools from scholarship being used by lay people that, that don't necessarily have the degrees or training. The problem is in the co-option and insistence of that term. I heard somebody who is trained call this character a Mary Sue. And my understanding of why they did that fits what I think about another character. Well, we need to slow our roll a little bit and back up and think about what actually was being said there, that there's a precision that happens in analysis that sometimes doesn't translate without the jargon. With, and that's and that's part of what I'm, what I'm trying to say. I, I'm not trying to criticize people for trying to do analysis. What bothers me is watching people insist, for the case of this particular example, that, that, you know, that Ray is a Mary Sue. And I'm like, why isn't she a chosen one? And then I realized they don't. They don't know the difference. That, well, they don't know that that's a trope. They don't know that there are other choices. It's it's like there's either Mary Sue or nothing. And I'm like, well, no, 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 no. Every piece of media ha is full of tropes or else it doesn't work. That's the point. And, and it's, it's identifying those patterns is how we learn to critique, analyze, to, but also to communicate. Like, what are we looking at? How do we describe this to each other in, in an efficient way? And that's what these patterns are about. And so I, I invite people into that. I, I just want them to do it contextually, not to say that we own it, not to say that, 
you know, we control it, but it's don't, ironically, or I'm trying not to say it with irony, but I'm going to go ahead and say it ironically. It's like, don't become a Mary Sue in this conversation. Exactly. Don't, 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 don't appropriate a trope that is in common usage in a scholarship community to make it mean something else because you want to exert power over what the scholarship is supposed to mean. Exactly. I think it's so interesting that, and it's a, it's a continual thing that I, that I deal with as a researcher, as a teacher, I'm sure it's the same way my friends who are PhDs in counseling feel when people just throw around the word triggered all the time. Oh, right. Yeah. There are specific meanings to these terms. And while they may sound like colloquial terms to you, they're not. Right. So a Mary Sue is a Mary Sue. A Mary Sue is not a creator's pet. A Mary Sue is not a cousin Oliver. A Mary Sue is... Not a manic pixie dream girl, although I could make an argument that sometimes they are. (laughs) Yeah. We have these specific terms for a reason because they are useful within the scholarship community as all jargon is within any field as a shorthand to the exact meaning between and among scholars. Right. And when we use those terms colloquially, they don't mean the same thing. So since you mentioned Cousin Oliver, just go back to my earlier example, I thought of Wesley Crusher as a Cousin Oliver, not as a Mary Sue or a Gary Stew. He's there to give that connection to a younger audience, just like Bucky in Captain America's original lexicon in the 1940s, just like Robin to Batman. You know, it's to give a... But here's the thing. I would argue that none of those are an actual Cousin Oliver because the Cousin Oliver trope is also very specific. The Cousin Oliver Mm -hmm. trope is the child you bring into a series when the original children have gotten too old to be counted as children. So you bring in a new child at the back end of a series in order to reconnect with the youngest part of your audience. Like Raven on the Cosby show. Like Raven on the Cosby show. Perfect example. Raven is actually the, the quintessential example of a cousin Oliver because all the original kids are out of the house and you still need to appeal to the youngest demographic. You bring in another child out of nowhere in order to, we saw this on growing pains. Mm hmm the the Alan Dick show where they brought in a new, they had another kid so that they could have a youngest child. What's his name? Mickey or something. But yeah, yeah, no, I, I I'm with you, but you know, that's, it's like Robin to Batman. I guess the reason why I make that connection, there's been many Robins, right? Oh, well, that's true too. Right. And so, and I, and I see what you're saying there, but I guess I, I was thinking about it in that original sense, that original connection space. So I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I guess Bucky wouldn't be because he was there from the beginning. But there's an argument to be made that after Bucky leaves, you know, <laughs> there's an argument to be made that actually Patriot is a cousin Oliver. Yeah. Well, no, here's your cousin Oliver from that. I'm going to really nerd on him on this for a minute. Um, in 1948, when Bucky is shot in the stomach so that he can no longer be a superhero and they add Golden Girl as Captain America's new teenage or at least young partner trying to appeal to a different demographic yes. to, you know, that that's closer. That's to closer that, to a classic cousin Oliver, for sure. Sure. So as we always do when we reach this point in the conversation, <laughs> Mary Sue's 
So what? Well, I mean, Mary Sue's still serve as a valuable analysis tool for scholars, but largely what that tool, what that trope is doing is establishing the author's relationship to the text and the way that that character functions within the text to kind of reinterpret, to empower the author to dominate the text is why that pattern recognition exists for us to be able to say, here's how the text had worked. Here's how it is working with this character who fits into these things. It's an author insert. It's, you know, an exemplified character and all of this um, so that we can talk about it. Having that pattern and category reappropriated to mean lots of other categories robs them of their power, which is why we need to have conversations like this so that we can come into agreement. So, for example, what you just heard on on Cousin Oliver, Dr. Bell and I might agree on what it is. I might have been thinking about a different way. We have to have a conversation to get on the same page so that when I talk to him about it, he knows what I'm saying and I know what he's saying. And these are the kinds of academic exchanges that are so valuable they don't happen as well out in fan space, where if I say, hey, if you call that a Mary Sue, you have nothing to do with the chosen one. Like you have obscured that, like we can't actually use, we can't distinguish these two patterns anymore. I'm usually not going to get to have this conversation like I've had with Dr. Bell, where one of us adjusts our nuanced definitions in this case, me saying, okay, right, Robin and Bucky in their original sense are no are not Cousin Olivers, and I will not call them that because I want to be understood. I would come down much in the same place as you. The Mary Sue is a term that has use and meaning within the scholarship community that becomes much more muddled colloquially outside of the scholarship community. And that's a thing that happens across fields having nothing to do with popular culture, too. Part of that's because we're moving outside of the processes of scholarly community itself. Right. And once we get outside of it, now we're just talking colloquially and now the rhetoric shifts to one of domination or there's just different logics going on. We're not trying to make sense. We're trying to do something. Right. We have a rhetorical agenda at that point. Right. So hopefully this conversation has sparked your own thoughts about Mary Sue's and what they do and what they are. Maybe you'll look back through texts that you enjoy and see if there are points at which you identify Mary Sue's. We hope that this show continues to generate thought and conversation. It's one of the express goals of what it is we're trying to do here. Thanks for coming back for season two. I'm excited about what's going to be happening this season in the future. I really want to thank my guest today, the guest worker, Dr. Rick Stevens. Thanks for hanging out with me, Rick. Oh, thanks. Always, always a pleasure. And we will see you again in two weeks. Have a good rest of your day. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers or Twitter at podcastdcw. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.